Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So if you would turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11 and Matthew 21, we'll be there in a moment. First, Hebrews 11. And, uh, you know, there's one of the things that came across in the book that I was, as we were going through it here, that uh, Henry Blackaby said that really has, um, I guess, droven, droven, there's there's grammar for you, has driven a nail right into my heart. And that is, he made this comment that if I, that there's two words in the Christian language that do not go together. No, Lord. That if I say no, he's not my Lord. That Lord, by very definition, means he always gets a yes. And there's something about that that has really, really uh, stirred me up. And I'm seeing that, Lord, I, I have said no to you a lot. So... Even in that, see, I just used the word Lord. Can I use the word Lord? And no, I can't. And yet I do all the time. And I'm thinking, I have, I've gotten comfortable in this Christianity where I'm kind of the one that calls the shots. And we make this emphasis that God is our friend, and he is. Praise the Lord that he's our friend. But sometimes, I think for me, when I'm thinking about him as my friend, it causes me to forget that he also is my God. He is my Lord. He is master. He is king. And what he says goes. And what he means has to happen. He, obedience is really demanded when he is Lord. Do you see the same thing at work in your life? I know I do. It's kind of... We live in this tension. He's my friend, yes. He's my Lord, yes. Don't forget that. And this morning we're talking about the crisis of belief, and it's really about trusting him as Lord. And the human race, the entire human race has trust issues. We all do. It makes sense given the fact that we're a fallen race, you think about it, because we all know that we're guilty of letting other people down, and so we instinctively assume that other people are going to let us down, and we all have stories of that happening, and then we assume that, well, God's going to let me down. Have you ever had a no-show, a date that didn't show up, have a friend that said they were going to be there and didn't show up. You had somebody who promised to help, and then they didn't help. Been there? We all have. Somebody that didn't hold up their end of the deal, and the truth is, I've been on both ends of that. We've all done it, and we've all experienced it. Part of the reason why we have trouble trusting God as Lord is because, quite frankly, we think he's a lot like us. And he's not. So if I've been a no-show, and if I've had other people be no-shows on me, then I reason that God's probably going to be a no-show too. And it causes me to struggle to trust him. Of course, there's another problem we have. 
Because we've all experienced, probably, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've experienced this, where you have thought you were trusting God, you tried to obey God, and then it blew up in your face. And you think, well, did I, did I hear from God correctly or not on that situation? And that also can cause us to uh, be gun-shy, I'll say, when it comes to trusting God. But have you ever accused somebody else of not being a no-show and then found out that you were the one that got your wires crossed? I've been there. Like, we have, we have two Paneras in town. And this has happened to me on several occasions. Hey, I'll meet you at Panera, such and such time, place, date, right? Show up, I'm there, looking at all the goodies, smelling the great food. The time comes, they're a no-show. I say, okay, we'll give them a couple of minutes. Ten minutes later, then I do the text thing. And you know how you do the text thing. You're not, a, you're not mean about it. You don't text and say, hey, where are you? You don't do that. You got to play it nice and cool. So you say, um, I'm just confirming, are we getting together today? Something like that. And then they text back and they say, well, yeah, I'm here. You done that? And I look around and I say, I don't see you here. And then I realize... I got my wires crossed. They're in the right spot. I'm in the wrong spot. Here's what I know about God. God never gets his wires crossed. And if I think he's a no-show, it's because I've misunderstood something. I got my wires crossed. He didn't get his crossed. And I'm in this constant... Growing, I suppose, in, your, in my life where I'm learning I have to adjust to him. He doesn't adjust to me because he's the one who's perfect. That's why he doesn't adjust to me. I know some of us hear that and we think, what, God's on some kind of ego trip, like he's not going to do it my way? Well, no, he's God. His way is perfect. So I'm the one that has to adjust to his way, not the other way around and that's a struggle because I have trust issues, and so do you. So that brings us to our memory verse this week, which is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6, let's read it out loud together and see if we can't try to remember it. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay, let's do it again, and we want to hear you from home. If you're home, say this out loud so we can all hear you. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K, which means it requires T-R-U-S-T. Funny thing about trust is this. You don't know you can do it until you're in a situation where you have to do it. That's a goofy thing about trust. It's kind of unfair. You don't really know you can do it until you're have to do it. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, 
It's impossible to please God. Why? Well, because faith is essential to any relationship. Whether you're friends or coworkers or, or longtime lovers, faith is required for the relationship to work. How do we know? Well, what happens when a breach of trust occurs in that relationship? A breach of trust happens in a relationship, and the relationship is broken. It's hurt, isn't it? Why? Because faith is required for that relationship to work. You see, faith is a verb. It's something that I do. It's not something that I have. Um, How does my wife know that I trust her? How does Karis know that I trust her in our relationship? Well, I guess partly she knows it by the things I don't do. She knows it by the fact that I don't spend all of our time doubting her. I don't spend all of our time second-guessing her. I don't, I don't uh, track her cell phone. I don't undermine her or sabotage the decisions that she makes. You know, I, I don't do those things. So in that sense, she knows that I trust her, right? She kind of knows her by the things I, I don't do. But she also knows it by the things I, I do, by the fact that by the fact that when she asks me to do something, I obey that. I, I, I follow through with it because I've trusted her enough to do what she's asked me to do. And this transfers into our relationship with God. How, does, how do I know that I trust God? How do I know that I have faith in God? Well, I have faith partly by what I don't do. I don't doubt him. I don't hesitate when he asks me to do something. I, I, I trust him. I believe him enough to do what he says needs to be done. If he says this is the right way to do it, well, then I'm going to trust that's the right way to do it. And that's called faith. How do I know I have faith? I obey God. And this is what the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about. We memorize Hebrews chapter 11, 6. But if you got your Bibles open, I want to just fly through this real quick, the whole chapter, so that you can see it. But there's a couple of things we want to learn about faith from Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews 11, verse 4. Notice that by faith, this man named Abel brought a better offering. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah built an ark. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed and went. Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham offered Isaac. Hebrews eleven twenty-seven. by faith Moses left Egypt. Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. by faith Moses kept the Passover. You see the trend? Hebrews eleven twenty nine. 29, by faith the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell when the people marched around them and did what God told them to do. So what do we learn about faith from Hebrews chapter 11 and from these examples of these men and women in this chapter? We learn Four quick things. One is faith is a verb. It's something you do. Did you notice the action? 
In each example, these people did something. Their faith was not a theory. Their faith was practical. They did something. Faith requires action. The second thing we learn is that faith is a response. Did you see that? Verse 7, Noah was warned about things to come, and so what did he do? Build a boat. In verse 8, Abraham was called, so what did he do? Obeyed and went. In verse uh, 27, Moses saw him who was invisible, and then he acted accordingly. Uh, Verse 30, we know that God told them, it doesn't tell us directly there, but we know God told them to walk around the walls of Jericho. So what did they do? Walked around the walls of Jericho. So you see that in each one of those instances, faith not only was an action, but it was also a response. God said, I'm doing this, and they responded accordingly. So go back to our memory verse from last week, John chapter 5, verse 19. Remember, we, I won't quiz you, but remember last week we memorized this Bible verse, John 5, 19. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so, in other words, Jesus was living by faith. Jesus only ever responded to what he saw Father doing. He saw God doing something, and he acted accordingly. That makes Jesus the greatest example of faith that the world has ever seen. And so when Jesus is asking you and me to obey and follow, he's simply asking us to do what he did. Find out where I'm going, move with me. This is the life of Faith. Faith is seeing what God is doing and responding to it accordingly. That's what it is. You see how we've gotten faith kind of twisted and wrong? Because we think of faith as something that we use to get what we want, and I'm just believing for it. And that's not really faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is exactly this, seeing what God is doing and joining him. I'm letting go of my agenda, I'm picking up his agenda, and I'm following what he's doing. This is a life of faith. So the third thing we learn about faith from these people in Hebrews 11 is faith is basic. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That means faith is the only thing that makes it possible to please God, which makes faith basic. To our Christianity. This message is Christianity 101. It's not Christianity 401. Like this is entry-level stuff right here, which is interesting. After walking with God for 40 years, why is it still an issue for me? I don't know what that makes me. A slow learner, stubborn, <laughs> All kinds of adjectives that probably aren't good. The fourth thing that we learn about faith from Hebrews chapter 11 is that faith is actually in a person. It's in a person. You go back to chapter 11, verse 6, to our memory verse, without faith it's impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those. So there's two basics to faith, and that is I I believe that God exists and I believe he's good. Those two things are at the core of faith. See, it's in a person. 
Um, let me illustrate it this way. One of our very first home projects that I ever did at our house was to knock down a wall um, between our dining room and our living, our family room, and to make the room bigger. And you say, well, wow, that's a kind of a big first project for a guy, young guy living in a home. Yeah, it was. But what gave me the confidence to knock down a wall and open up the room? My brother-in-law had done it before, and he was with me. And so he's visiting, and we're talking, and he says, well, I think we could do that. You know, that's, that's not a load-bearing wall. We could, that's, I've done that. We could do this, do that. And he had all the ideas. Next thing you know, the wall's down. What gave me the confidence to be able to take on that project was, he's with me. My confidence was not in finishing the project. My confidence was not in doing the project. It was really the fact that Tim was there. And he knew how to do the project. And he and I together could take that on. And this is what it means to have faith. Faith is in a person. If you go back to Hebrews 11, each one of these people went with God. They didn't go for God. They didn't go on God's behalf. They went with them. So, so God's building an ark, and Noah joined them. God's walking around the walls of Jericho, and the people of Israel joined him. God's moving somewhere, and so Abraham went with them. This is what they were doing. Faith is actually in the person with whom they were going. So if God says, this is where I'm going, I don't know, that's where I want to be. How about you? That's faith. See, the way you live your life is a testimony of what you believe about God. So let me ask this hard question. Looking at your schedule and looking at your finances, do you really believe in God? Those are very two very, 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 very practical, tangible things in our lives. That's why they get picked on easily. But looking at your schedule and looking at your finances, do you really believe in God? See, this is what's called the crisis of belief that we're studying. The crisis of belief is not that you've got this hard time, you're going through this troubling circumstance. I mean, yes, those are definitely crises. But I think we get hung up on the word crisis, and we think of it that, but this not, that's not what we're talking about here. Crisis of belief is that I know what God is doing, I know where he's going, and I now have to make the decision, do I trust him enough to go with him? Do I trust him enough to adjust what I'm doing in order to join where God's going? That's the crisis of belief. Does that make sense? You see... Um, let me, and that requires risk. That requires trust. Let me drive it home a little bit. I'm not saying this is any one of you at all. I'm just throwing this out there because I feel the Lord saying, you got to say this, this example. You know you've been drinking again. And you struggle with whether or not to tell somebody and get some help. Or... Do I continue the fake charade and pretend like I'm walking in victory? See, that requires risk. That requires faith. That's a crisis of belief. Am I going to let it go? Am I going to take the risk and ask for help? Or am I just going to keep up with the charade? 
How about this one? You know that God's telling you to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You know it. And you struggle because it's hard. Can't imagine what that would look like if I did. That's a crisis of belief. Um, you know that Jesus is the Savior. You know it. Know it. But you struggle to claim it and own it because you're afraid it's going to ruin your fun. That's a crisis of belief. By the way, I can tell you, following Jesus is a blast. It's a whole different kind of fun. But let me tell you, it's a blast. You know God is asking you to pray with your spouse. Maybe he's asking you to lead your family in prayer, lead your family in the word. But you're struggling with it because, you know, you're kind of in the rut. And breaking out of that is going to be hard. And it's just easier to keep on going. That's a crisis of belief. Am I willing to adjust? Am I willing to change my schedule? Am I willing to, in order to go where God's leading me? See? It's a crisis of belief. You know God's telling you to tithe, but you can't imagine your checkbook without that money in it. A crisis of belief. These are just a few examples. Happens all the time in our lives. Anytime I'm faced with this decision, will I go where God's going? Will I adjust my schedule, my time, my finances, adjust in order to line up with where God's going? Will I do that? That's a crisis of belief. So what do I do? Will I obey God or will I make up excuses for why I don't need to obey God? How many of you are great at making up excuses? I'm really good at that. I got some great ones over the years. I should have written them all down because they're really good. See, will I? My excuses just leave me empty. When I refuse to obey God, I only hurt myself. Remember, God loves you. Remember that? And so if God's moving somewhere, it's only because he wants you in on the fun. He wants you to experience something that's awesome. You're the only one that's hurting yourself by not obeying God. So let me just meddle for a moment and be a pastor. We're now in week six of experiencing God. So we're halfway through this series, and it's a lot of work. And some of the things in here are tough to take. They are. And some of you have already given up on it because it's too hard. Now, you're not going to say that way because that sounds cheesy. So you have all the reasons why you've given up on it. You know, you can criticize the material because, oh, I think he's wrong on that. I think he's wrong on that. Yeah, yeah. You sit on your high and mighty horse. Yeah, yeah, it's wrong. Great way to justify not doing it. Or, you know, I can say it's just not, it's, uh, you know, our, they're asking too much. The leaders of our church are unreasonable for expecting this much work, right? Yeah. Can I tell you something? That when your elders and your servant team and we were talking and praying about this series months ago, we knew it would be hard, and we did it on purpose because you need it. Can I just be a coach? Can I be a coach a little bit? Come on, give me an extra lap. Come on, give me another 10, because you need it. 
You need the challenge. You need to be pushed. You need it. That's why we're doing it. Exactly. Exactly. You see? And so it's easy to just give up or I can embrace. Can I adjust? Can I say, okay, God, I'm going to buckle down. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to... Or, or I can have all kinds of excuses. And then you know what will happen? You'll miss what God has for you. And 20 years from now, you'll, show, you'll still be there in the exact same spot that you are now spiritually. And you don't want that. There's so much, you know, so much. Can you imagine going to Disney World and, and going through the turnstile and then just staying at the front gate? I mean, why would you ever do that? The kingdom of God is so awesome. You got to get, you're in the gate. Let's explore the park. But it's hot and you'll probably get thirsty and your feet are probably going to get tired and you're proud, right? But keep exploring because there's a lot there. Keep going. The only person that we heard is ourself. God has something for you. Um, listen, your salvation was free, but your growth is going to cost you. Each one of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 is celebrated for their faith and what they did. Their faith was not a theory. And if you want to please God, your faith cannot be a theory either. It needs to be practiced. James 2 verse 26 says this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So saying that I have faith means nothing. The Holy Spirit told me that today he doesn't want to just talk about a crisis of belief, but he's actually bringing us to one. Oh, great. So to make this even more painful, let's look at a story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 21. Turn to Matthew chapter 21, and while you're doing that, I want to just give us, before we read what Jesus said, let me just set it up with some quick history, and then I think what Jesus said is going to hurt even more. So this is great. So we need to start way back, and now we're going to have fun. We need to start way back, though, before we read what Jesus said, go way back to Moses, to the book of Deuteronomy. Imagine that Moses is an old man. He's about 120 years old, and he's faithfully led the nation of Israel for all of these years, and he got them out of Egypt and got them through the desert, and now he's handing off the leadership reins to Joshua. And Joshua is the guy that's going to lead them into the promised land. Moses was the guy that got them to the promised land. And Moses knows this, and so he gathers everybody together, and he's got a few final words for the people of Israel, and he gives them a review of where they've been over the last 40 years, and then he kind of gives them a few things to be looking for as you get into the promised land. So he's just, you know, he's really giving them these final words, and it's pretty rich. And as a part of that, Moses, this is the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. So uh, that's why Deuteronomy has a lot of repeat stories in it. You read Deuteronomy, you say, I thought I already read that one. You did. Moses is reviewing. 
That's what he's doing. You go, hey, that's what the Experiencing God book does, <laughs> doesn't it? Some of you have said that. Man, why do I do the same thing five times? Well, that's a learning style. That's what he's doing. So Moses is doing that, reviewing with the people. And as part of that, he renews the covenant that God made and that people made with God. And the covenant between God and the people of Israel went something like this, basically. As long as you obey God, God promised to, obey, to bless. Oh, man, it was going to be good. But if you disobeyed, not good. It's going to be bad. And so the people ratify this covenant with God. And Moses then addresses this issue. What if somebody just says they're making the promise, but they don't actually do it? What if somebody's just giving lip service to the covenant? And that's what Moses addresses here in Deuteronomy 29, verse 19 and 20. Here's what he says. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking... I'll be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. How does God feel about lip service? Not good. So you move the timeline up now about a thousand years, and you come to the life of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet. And now, Ezekiel is living during a time when the people of God are actually living out the negative part of that covenant. They had been disobedient to God for hundreds of years, and now they were in exile, and it was bad. Times were bad. And Ezekiel was ministering to the people of God during this very dark time. And he says a similar concept. And we'll just summarize the text because it was pretty long. But Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21 to 24, he says, if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. Any wicked people, that's good news. Thank you, Lord. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? So, so here's the principle. God is not interested in who or what you say you are. As they say, the proof is in the pudding. Faith in God is proven in how I live not how many times I claim to have it. And this brings us to Jesus' little story in Matthew chapter 21. So all of that is sort of a background. So what Jesus brilliantly does is he takes these Old Testament principles and he kind of updates it and puts it in a story for people like you and me to be able to really understand it. And he starts off in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. And Jesus says this, what do you think? What do you think? Give me your opinion on this. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. 
Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. First, Jesus is brilliant. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. This is, here's these guys, these religious guys, and they're challenging Jesus on his authority. They're asking him, hey, by what authority? Who, who said you can preach and do the miracles you're doing? By what authority? What are you doing? And so this is the context. And Jesus answers them by not really answering them. He answers them by asking a question. Verse 28, he goes, well, what do you think? And I love that because in essence, Jesus is coming under their authority. They're questioning his authority. And so Jesus says, well, let me ask you, what do you, what do you think? Can you give me your opinion on something? But really what Jesus is doing is he's setting them up. I, Jesus is so good at flipping conversations. I love that about him. So here they are. They don't realize they're getting set up for the, for the whammy, for being exposed. And then Jesus tells them this story about this dad with these two kids. And I think every parent can probably relate to this scenario. I mean, probably anybody can relate to this scenario. Anybody can. Come on, parents, you ever had a kid? And your kid, you say, hey, can you take out the garbage? No. And they, do, they give you all kinds of grief. And then eventually, they might be grumbling, and they might, they might have given you lots of attitude, but they did it. And then we've also had the other thing happen. Hey, would you take out the garbage? Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they never do. They get busy. They're watching TV, playing video games, whatever it is they're doing, and then they don't do it. And five hours later, you're like, why didn't the garbage get taken out? You know, we've all been there. And so here's Jesus. He tells this story. We all get it. We all get it. And the other thing we got to notice about this story is, notice the father only asked the sons once. I think that's important too. In other words, God doesn't, he really doesn't play games with you and me. I mean, he, he asks you. He gives you the shot. And he is gracious. I mean, don't get me wrong. So he has been known to give us another chance and another chance and another chance. But let's not forget he's God. And he doesn't have to. He could just ask you once. And if you miss it, you miss it. I don't know that I, I don't want to miss it. And then here's the question Jesus asks. So which of the two did what the father wanted? Which of the two sons actually obeyed? Actually obeyed. So ignore what they said. Ignore their words. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the first kid was a twit and the other kid was nice to his father's face. Like, that doesn't matter. 
So, so skip, overlook the attitude. Jesus is saying, which kid actually obeyed? And it's the first one. See, what matters is obedience, action. That's what matters. That's the point of his story. And these two sons represent us. Some of us are like the first son. Oh, man, anytime God asks to do anything, our first reaction is we resist. Our first reaction is we grumble. Our first reaction is we fight it. We argue against it. And then sooner or later, we come around with our tail between our legs, and we do it. But you know, most of us, I think most of us are like the second son. We've learned the right things to say. We've learned the right Bible verses to quote. We have faithfully filled out our Experiencing God book. But that's all the farther it goes. And you know what Jesus has to say about that? Verses 31 and 32. The tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because faith requires action. And if you don't have action, you don't have faith. They go together. Some of us have more excuses than we have action. Do I, I trust God enough to say, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do? See, the crisis of belief is about trusting God enough to act on what he's saying to do. Trusting God enough to adjust my ways to his ways. I adjust to him, not the other way around. You and I always are adjusting to him. So what do I do about this? And we can come, Karis, you can come start playing the keyboard. What do we do about this? Just two quick things to apply it. Number one is you got to go back. Um, this morning, some of you might, is there something that you know God is asking you to do that you've been resisting? I think this morning the Lord is saying it's time to get busy about that. Let's start taking the steps you need to take in order to make that change, in order to obey the Lord in that. See? So maybe that's where some of us are at this morning. You know, some of you maybe have been, maybe it's, I know some of us have not yet received Jesus as your Savior. You've been, you're kicking the tires and asking the questions and uh, throwing up the, the roadblocks, if you will. You know, can I just tell you, like, you can't build faith on doubt, and there comes a point where you trust. You take the step and you say, okay, God, I'm going to claim it. Jesus is my Savior. I don't, have all, I don't have all of the answers. I don't fully understand everything, but I'm going to claim it. No more messing around. It's a crisis of belief, but will you do it? That's, the, that's where the Lord's asking you to go today. Take the step. You say, well, I can't think of anything in my life that I have to do. I can't think of anything that, like, God's been asking me to do. I don't, you know, I can't think of anything that God's been bugging me about that I, I've been resisting for a long time. I can't think of that. Okay, that's, that's legit, too. Then I would encourage you to do this. Wait. 
worship, pray, get into the word, press into just being good friends, you know, grow in your relationship with Jesus. Just keep your eyes fixed on him, your ears tuned towards him. And you know, he will. Oh, he will. God's not static. I guarantee you there will come a point soon when there will be a, something he's asking you to do. But until then, just when there's nothing clear, when there's no real clear, obvious direction that I have to take, then the most clear thing is just keep pursuing the Lord. Press in, be his friend, and enjoy his presence. And Next time he says to do something, I'm ready to roll. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.